0: joining us my name is katie Heinley, and this is the fisheries podcast a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science if you haven't already follow the podcast on twitter facebook and instagram at fisheries pod if you're the generous sort you can be like john robin janet ben walker and garrett and support the podcast on patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation which helps us pay for various parts of the show If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase fisheries pods, shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Taylor Proyle. Originally from Wisconsin, Taylor received her Bachelor's of Science in Biology Ecology from Northern Michigan University in 2017. While pursuing her undergraduate degree, she worked in Sleeping Bear National Lakeshore on Aquatic Invasive Species Management and conducted an undergraduate thesis on the circadian metabolic cycles of juvenile brook trout in the Leonard Lab. Taylor then worked on the lake trout removal project in Yellowstone National Park for two years before moving to Bozeman and starting work as a lab manager in the Verhill Lab at Montana State University, where she then began her master's. Her graduate research objective is to identify the phenotypic traits that predict the survival, growth, and reproductive performance of wild-origin West cutthroat trout reared in a conservation hatchery near the Flathead River in Montana. After graduation this spring, Taylor will begin working as a fish biologist for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources out of the Escanaba Lake Research Station. Welcome to the podcast. Can we start just with a little bit on your background? So like what got you interested in fisheries and science to start with?
1: Sure. So I would say like growing up, I was pretty involved in like being outdoors. Like my dad is a fish biologist and he would take me to work and stuff, but I also just spent a lot of time outside as a kid growing up, we were either, we lived on a lake or when we moved into town, we had this huge forested acreage behind my house. So I just spent a lot of time, hanging out back there. And so I would always describe myself as being more like a naturalist growing up. And like my grandma was always really into birding and flowers. And so we would always do that together. And so I think I was always outdoorsy, but wasn't necessarily interested in science until Mm -hmm. college. Like I, I guess in high school, I always thought I was going to be like an anthropologist or like a translator, or do something with foreign affairs and never saw myself in STEM. I really hated it in high school really, really bad, (laughs) like really, really bad. So yes, I think once I kind of realized that you could, you know, not maybe be good at STEM, but still find it interesting and. Find like find ways to like apply things I was interested in in sort of like a natural sciences way. That was kind of like a cool world colliding moment for me, and that's what made me want to get into science. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Uh, You mentioned that you started off at community college. How do you think that helps shape your career today and your experience at Northern Michigan?
1: Well, I definitely don't have as much debt as other people, which is nice. (laughs) I still have a lot, but. It was really nice to be able to kind of, you know, like not knowing exactly what I wanted to do and then go to a community college in Northern Wisconsin, just like a pretty good school. Like they, it's kind of funnels kids to transfer programs within the state. So it's, it is a really rigorous, rigorous program and it's designed to replace the first two years of an undergraduate degree. And so it was just nice having small class sizes, passionate teachers who, Loved what they did. So, I think my first intro to bio class, I had like six people in the class, maybe, and then took botany, and that had 10 people. And so it was just, you got so much one on one time, and it was very personalized. The professors just had so much more time to talk to you. Not that like my professors at Northern didn't take a lot of time, but when you have 200 students, like it's obviously going to be a different experience. So, I think it really helped solidify my career path for me, like just getting that one-on-one really passionate instructors and then being able to be like, yep, I know what I'm doing. So then as soon as certain it was immediately like organic chemistry, like physics, like super difficult classes. I was like, okay, I do want to do this. Like maybe if I hadn't had such a great positive experience initially, I'd be like, this sucks. I'm not doing this. It's not worth it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. What made you choose Northern Michigan? Mostly it was on Lake Superior. Yeah. That's cool. And I think comparably like for price, it was pretty close. It only, it does, it's pretty easy to get residency in Michigan. And basically it was either going to be that or like Stevens Point mm-hmm. thing. And I At that time I had no desire to go to Stevens Point. I was like, and I always loved Lake Superior and I wanted to be on the lakes and it was further away from my family. So that's ideal.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they had a good program, like a Northern they have a biology degree. Well, initially I wanted to do plant sciences more or botany. I think Mm -hmm. it was biology with an emphasis in botany or something. And then I took plant physiology and I was like, no, I'm not doing this. But then they have an ecology emphasis where you have the same core classes in science, but then it's just all electives. Mm -hmm. So you can still have like that core rigor to then go on to a graduate degree at that time, you and I knew we wanted to go into grad school for whatever I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure like whatever degree I got could then, because you know, when you look at different grad programs or like two years of chemistry or one mm-hmm. year and like a lot of like environmental science or different kind of not biology degrees, but that are involved in environment don't necessarily have that like STEM core. So that was kind of all why I picked it. And it's like a great school program was small lots of opportunities to research and talk to professors. So and it's on the lake. It was a pretty sweet place to live too.
0: Yeah. I've heard really good things about that university. It's just kind of curious. And so looking through your CV and I mean, just talking with you, I know you well enough. <laughs> You've done a few different, or you worked at a few different tech positions during your undergrad, starting, I think, starting with the one at Sleeping Bear Dunes. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I did. I don't, I think this might be on my CV, but I started with like the Marquette Conservation District that summer and then went to Sleeping Bear Dunes for like the rest of the summer. Mm -hmm. Sleeping Bear Dunes was pretty much, it was like my first kind of federal position and working for the Park Service in Sleeping Bear Dunes was really like the first big internship I had. So what did you do for that work? It was kind of a mix. It was really kind of odd situation because I was hired, but then like the tech that I was supposed to be working under never showed up. So then I kind of took on like some of her jobs too. (laughs) So I was doing a lot of, I think I was initially just supposed to be doing like water quality assessments on the the Lake Michigan beaches. So like Spirit Dunes has like the lakeshore of Lake Michigan and also has inland lakes and inland waters. So I think initially my position was just supposed to be like monitoring all the beaches for E. coli or like health advisories. Mm-hmm. But then I ended up doing a lot of aquatic invasive species monitoring on the inland lakes as well and, and on the beaches. So it was cool. Got to go out to all the Manitou islands that are on the lakeshore and sample for invasive species and do a lot of general aquatic health monitoring. Which was cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, your first year with the Yellowstone Lake Trout Removal Program, that was while you're still in undergrad, right?
1: Yes. I was a SCA intern between my junior and senior year.
0: And the SCA, so that's the Student Conservation Association. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that works just for anyone who's not familiar with it?
1: Yeah, it's a really awesome program. I think I had never heard of it, but now since being in school and like getting to know more agencies. It's actually really prevalent across the country. Basically, undergrads or I think recent grads too can you pay $25 and then you fill out an application and then they pair you with some sort of agency. Mm-hmm. And you're at a field station for the summer. And then you you get a stipend and you do like free living arrangements. And then I think if you do AmeriCorps option you end up getting like a scholarship for your next year of tuition. So it's a pretty sweet deal for, obviously you really don't make any money, but you also don't have to pay rent. So it's kind of like a trade-off, like, I don't know. It kind of sucks that people can't make money at the time. Seems kind of like not super inclusive, but it's also a great opportunity for someone to figure out if it's something they want to do. And then you can basically move somewhere for the summer and then work there for the summer and you basically get connections to get a job. for the future, Yeah. Which is kind of what happened to me.
0: Yeah. So you were mainly working on the Lake chart moveable program on Yellowstone Lake. Uh, do you want to kind of talk about what your day-to-day
1: life was like for that? Sure. So my SCA was a little different. Like my first year was different than my second year because my first year as an intern, I was mostly working with like Pat Bigelow, and kind of working more with the contract crews, the Hickey Mm -hmm. Brothers. So the Hickey Brothers are a company from Wisconsin that has been brought in to do the heavy lifting on removing lake trout from the lake, because they've been doing it for like 100 years in Lake Michigan. So they're like the experts. (laughs) So they brought them in to gill net out the lake trout from Yellowstone Lake. And then a Park Service employee will go out on the boats and kind of do like some data collection, quality control, kind of like an observer on the boats. <clears throat> so I was doing a lot of that my first year. And then there's also the lake trout telemetry project. So we would go tag, radio tag, lake trout, and then track them across the lake to look for spawning. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then my second year when I was a technician, that was working for the park service gill nutting. Boat. So I mostly just did gill nutting, some tagging, Helping out with grad student projects on the lake, but mostly just gill netting and operating the boat, which was pretty fun. Yeah. <laughs> around like drinking coffee, gill netting.
0: <laughs> Eating your like trout macaroni and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was trying to like think of the best flow for this, which is why I wanted to start with your jobs because your research ties in well together. Mm-hmm. So while you're at NMU, you were also working on an undergraduate research thesis with Brooke Trout. That was a fairly physiology heavy project as is your master's. So first I was wondering what sparked your interest in this physiology field?
1: Yeah. So I think mostly I became interested in physiology just as kind of like the root reason why things happen. So you can study, and obviously this isn't an oversimplification, but like think I was really interested in ecology and I was like okay well why are why is this this way and then you kind of bring it break it down to behavioral ecology which I'm really interested in and you break that down to physiology and it's kind of like that's where you can really mechanistically start to answer some questions and yeah it's oversimplifying there's obviously yeah. a lot more that goes into ecological systems than individual physiology but if you're kind of getting into like the bare bones reasons why an organism might do something, that's a good place to start. And so it was just cool. I think the reason I got into the Leonard lab, she came and talked into one of my classes and I had approached her about being in the lab and I was definitely not ready to do research. Like she was a really good mentor for me in that situation because she had really high standards and I had never had that before, but (laughs) I think at the time she was doing a lot of research and this is what piqued my interest is looking at like why some brook trout migrate and some don't. Mm
0: metabolically.
1: Like what is, what are the mechanistic drivers for why brook trout might choose, not choose why they might migrate to Lake Superior or not. And so the research I did was kind of a very, very basic component of that. When you do metabolic measurements, can you do them at any time of day or should there be a certain time of day? that because mm-hmm. <laughs> they were trying to then apply it to the field and do like field metabolic measurements. And they were like, all right, how different is it going to be if we do it in the morning versus the afternoon? Like, because obviously everything goes wrong in the field. So we might not be able to always do it at the exact time every day. So yeah, we just did just a lot of metabolic measurements of trout at night <laughs>
0: all day. <laughs> I think that the first time I ever heard about you was because I was working in Michigan at the time and one of my coworkers went to undergrad with you and I was looking at potentially going to Montana State for my grad program. It's like, oh, did you hear from Taylor Proyle? We worked on this crazy brick trail project together and it just (laughs) sounded horrible.
1: (laughs) It was pretty brutal. Like basically having never done research and then being in the fish lab at like 11 p.m every night and then having to come back at like 5 a.m the next day but then it's like for a grad student's research like he's mm-hmm. like "To to go well and you're like I don't know what I'm doing like <laughs> I just figured out what a brook trout is like <laughs> I don't even know why I'm here
0: just jumped off the deep end in physiology
1: work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like okay yeah and yeah, it was pretty novel for me to even think about doing stuff like that. And then at MSU, when I started working here, it's like the first two years I was working here, that was all I was doing. So I was like, Mm -hmm. well, at least I'm prepared for it now. (laughs) (laughs) So did you ever find
0: a difference in the metabolic rates across different times?
1: Uh, well, it turns out someone was like feeding them. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) So Um, so that really messed it all
0: up. And that's just because metabolic rates are higher when they're digesting or?
1: Yeah. So there would be this really big spike in the afternoon. So it would be like whatever in the morning and then it'd be a little lower at night, but not really that much lower, but then the afternoon was always really high. And we're like, this doesn't make any sense. And it turns out that the staff, not staff, there were students that worked in the fish lab doing fish care. Mm-hmm. We're not aware that we were, they shouldn't feed them, or it wasn't communicated clearly. I don't know. So I kind of messed it all up. And then we were like, well, it's probably the same.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Good learning lesson, anyways. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I wasn't the one that was supposed to tell anyone about that. So it wasn't my <laughs> fault, at least.
0: <laughs> and so that kind of rolls into the work you're doing now in the Brill lab with Weslow Cutthroat, if you want to. Kind of give an overview of that.
1: Yeah, so my research project is really just trying to answer the question of how can we know when wild origin trout are brought into a hatchery? How we how can we know which ones are going to do bad and are going to do well? Because now with modern conservation hatcheries, there's a real emphasis on avoiding artificial selection and avoiding kind of taking away the wildness of fish. And so they bring in these juvenile trout from the wild when they're about two or so rear them in captivity until they spawn and then stock those offspring and don't really maintain a brood stock but it, it still looks like and even though the hatchery does a ton of mitigation, stress mitigation, trying to avoid as much domestication selection as possible, there's still concerns like you always want to improve upon what you're doing. You always want to refine your technique. So And there are some fish that don't spawn and there are some that die. So is there a way that we could prevent that or predict that right when they come in? And so since July of 2019, I've been tracking one group of fish. So they spawned. So it was July of 2019. They came in and then they spawned in May of 2021. And so throughout that time, we measured like behavior, different health aspects, morphometrics, growth age mm-hmm. <laughs> and when they spawn the ones that suspect spawn successfully we looked at for the males we looked at like sperm motility at spermatocrit which is just like how much sperm do you have per volume
0: mm-hmm.
1: and egg quality we tracked like the offspring through hatch like so just basically like is there anything we can measure that's going to predict if it lives if it grows mm-hmm. and then if it spawns does do its offspring live? And I'm kind of in the middle of that. So I don't really have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: was trying to think, I was like, do I ask her about her preliminary results? Do we just leave (laughs) it?
1: Yeah, right now I have, I'm almost done with one part of my analysis that's just looking at how, because a key part of this would be like, if traits are consistent over time, then you could reliably measure something and know that that fish will have that trait in the future mm-hmm. so that was part of my analysis that's basically wrapping up now like where I looked at all the traits I measured and was like how much variation exists within one individual in this trait relative to the variation that exists among the whole population yeah you want the within individual variation very low right so like if it has if it's healthy when it comes in it's going to stay healthy it's unhealthy when it comes in, it's going to stay unhealthy. Like, obviously you would hope it would improve, but like for whatever reason. So you could relate early early trades to later trades. And it looks like there are some really promising ones that remain consistent over time. So those will probably be really like high likelihood that those could be related to performance and could be used to predict that performance because they're so consistent. Hope. (laughs) So now I have to like, do the second part of that, which is like relating that to performance. Yeah. So,
0: do you think the goal, like, assuming your project works out and there are like some of these traits that can indicate how well fish are going to do, would the goal be to adjust hatchery practices so that you've got a wider variety of fish that do well in hatcheries or to just be like, let's maybe leave these ones in the river for now?
1: I think that so. The main goal would be to propagate those fish. So, if I guess it, it's, there's a lot of assumptions underlying this, but so if we're thinking like some fish do well and some do bad, are the ones that do bad, do they have some genetic trait that is making them, mm-hmm. we're not testing for the genetics. Like we don't have that ability to like mass look for genes and stuff. But if those, if that small component of the population that doesn't do well is like has some underlying, they're like common in some way. mm mm-hmm spawning them, are you then removing traits from the population that are important in some right. way? So we want to make sure, and because like with changing environmental conditions or future environmental stresses, you don't want to really be removing any breadth of phenotypic or gene- genetic diversity because under, as things change, those might become better. And just because a fish doesn't do on a hatchery doesn't mean it be wild. Yeah. So because the hatchery is a pretty limited set of conditions, very different from the wild. So I think the main goal would be if we find fish or like a trait that indicates it's not going to do well, we want to propagate that. Like we want it to be successfully spawned. So if we could predict that, you would probably just raise it separately. Right. It's kind of a cost benefit balance. In the hatchery, because obviously they want to propagate as wide a diversity as possible, but you can't like individually rear each fish in its own little fish tank or something like that wouldn't really make sense. So, you know, if, if there are some where you could like 20 fish out of 200 that just need to be like in a separate tank, they need separate feed, they need more cover, they need something else that's, that's feasible. And they could kind of babysit those fish a little bit more Mm -hmm. maybe. That's just like, a, I guess it's just by identifying them. You can be like, these are the ones you need to keep an eye on. This is kind of what it's going to look like over time. Like if you have a fish that has this behavior or whatever, maybe do something else with
0: it mm-hmm.
1: I do well. And yeah. then it's a manager really to decide what to do. Yeah.
0: So with Sakokinie Springs, which is the hatchery you're working at, are they typically stocking these fish? to reintroduce Sub Cutler to areas or are they stocking them where Sub Cutler populations just aren't doing as well right now on their own?
1: So I don't think they've ever stocked hatchery fish on top of wild fish. Okay. They are basically, it's kind of in, in tandem with the South Fork Flathead Restoration Project where they're kind of going through different tributaries and removing non-native fishes, restoring that habitat. So it's, it's basically like Empty,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's it's historic okay. west Lope habitat that should have west Lope in it, and then they're just yeah rid of invasives or non natives and then putting the hatchery fish there. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was just trying to think. I was like, well, if they're not doing well in the hatchery, if they you just have like a few that are reproducing the wild on their own, but it doesn't really. There's also issues with stocking on top of wild fish too. So that's kind yeah. of what I was
1: curious. Yeah, I think they're kind of avoiding that. It looks like when they have multiple stocking events on top of each other. They're having a lot of, they're having a lot of success with like hatchery fish recruiting. Mm -hmm. It's fun. Oh yeah.
0: Awesome. And (laughs) I just, from knowing you and working with you, I know you've worked on many uh, side projects uh, along with your (laughs) (laughs) masters. Do you want to talk about any of those?
1: Yeah. I think it's like the whole first page of my resume or my, (laughs) research experience side project side project, side project. Yeah. <laughs> it's just basically been a lot of like proofing methods so like I've been for this project and like other projects where there's evidence in the literature it's like okay I think that this would work but I don't really know so I'm gonna test it first and make sure it'll work mm-hmm. and- Also, there were some things that we were initially planning on doing initially in the project that were vetoed by the committee or the hatchery staff. So um, like one of those, for example, was we wanted to look at metabolomics as a way to assess chronic stress in the hatchery um, as an alternative to taking cortisol blood measurements because Mm -hmm. cortisol can be really difficult to standardize, especially like in a functional fish hatchery. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> very difficult. So, whereas maybe with metabolomics, where you're kind of getting into more secondary stress or like metabolic metabolites that are in, indicative of primary stress, but aren't as sensitive to like acute stresses in the environment. Mm-hmm. So we did this whole side project looking at like rainbow trout in a hatchery and looking at confinement using a standardized stressor. And then we would take blood and we would, we did some cortisol assays and then compared that to metabolomics, but then the metabolomic data like wasn't super good. And then it didn't really work out. And then the hatchery manager was like, we're not doing blood anyway. So we we're like, okay, we're not going to do blood. <laughs> so I did but I figured out how to do all these assays and I did like a bunch of practice assays and practicing taking blood and doing all mm-hmm. this blood and <laughs> now we're not doing anything with blood, but it's really good experience. Yeah. yeah and like I'm using this tool, the distel fab meter, which is basically like a little microwave energy reader that you put up on the side of the fish and it can tell you, it gives you a proxy for like moisture content, which is related to energy density. So if you're looking a really fast way to assess health of health of a fish in the wild or in a hatchery it takes like 20 seconds you be like boom it's not doing good energy's low whatever be sick but it's never been used on west slope cut right so there's been this whole process of like proving it for that and like i think yeah i did a preliminary study on behavior like i had built these behavior arenas and i was like i don't know if this is gonna work for trout like so I did this whole side project where I did the behavior tests on rainbow trout at the tech center and that worked pretty much. But then they started like killing each other and oh god. <laughs> ideal. <laughs> so a lot of a lot of trial and error has gone into yeah. the project. <laughs> oh yeah. And then I did like an aging project because there's concerns with like hatchery fish that if a fish has been in a hatchery for a long time the way it lays down age rings will be much more subtle than in the wild right. because it's consistent growth over time but luckily at Sakokane they're on a natural water regime so it's okay their growth is definitely slower and then we just ended up doing odalis anyways and the- <laughs> yeah it's been fun <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> covered a lot of ground <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's been good like I think one of the The things I really like the most about my project is how general it is, which is really stressful. Like you have to kind of be an expert in like 20 different topics, but I feel like really prepared to like do anything at this point. Like, oh yeah, I can do that. Yeah. For
0: two minutes. I can totally do that. (laughs) Well, I do have two follow-up questions on a couple of those. One for the, just to clarify the natural water regime for Sakokane that's just that like the water temperature is fluctuating as it does with the streams
1: yeah so the Sakokane Springs is spring fed mm-hmm. and it's a flow through system so it it will go through dips in water temperature in the winter and come back up in the summer and mm-hmm. and then
0: with the distilled fat meter did you find that that worked for West Upcutter or is that still an ongoing project
1: It's still ongoing (laughs) because I'm just validating it right now. Um, It does seem, so the the process, the thing I'm doing now is like I have fat meter readings and then I have dry weight samples from some fish. So I'm going to compare those and determine like how accurate it is Mm -hmm. getting that moisture content to an energy in tissue samples. But even on calibrated, it appears that it's saying something Yeah, (laughs) like it's, it's, it seems like it is related. It's predicting some aspect of health. And so it, it it does seem to be related to, it's hard because it's not like a hundred percent, but you'll see like, when you just are looking at like the fish that died and the fish that didn't die, that are alive. Mm -hmm it'll be like no fish that died had a fat meter measurement above
0: 20 Mm
1: -hmm. And so while I can't say for sure, like, what does this mean? Because I haven't calibrated it yet. That seems pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I just have to figure out like what that means in terms of actual whole body energy for a West cut. Yeah. And it seems to be kind of saying that with um, relative condition And the fish that spawned, like, generally, fat meter and health was never as high for fish that didn't spawn or had lower relative condition, Mm -hmm. I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just curious. I know I've talked with you about that, but I was like, I don't actually
1: remember what they found there. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's still ongoing. Hard because typically with whole body energy, you would want to do some sort of, like, bomb calorimetry to get like the uh, oh yeah this is the whole body energy and then mm-hmm. you would relate to the fat meter to calibrate it right we are using just like proxy for that because we cannot get in to get proximate analysis done anywhere like mm-hmm. those are so backed up and part of this conversation
0: is just reminding me how much of an imposter i feel like in christine's lab because <laughs> all of the physiology talk is like so over my head
1: <laughs> oh no, i know i i feel like a huge imposter yeah. Is there anything
0: that I'm missing or like not thinking to ask about your project that you want to cover?
1: Yeah, I think in general, I do like to mention sometimes, because I feel like people have a lot of misconceptions about hatcheries. And I just think it's important to emphasize that every tool has an application Mm -hmm. and using a tool correctly and you're refining how you're using it and have like a good team that is managing it and like following up. I don't see why we can't use hatcheries within context, and yeah, and obviously, like these methods shouldn't be applied broadly to all hatcheries. So people are like, oh, we should just fix all the hatcheries. But if you're put yeah. you and take hatchery, there's no reason you would need to do this. Mm-hmm. Like these methods are for a very specific set of. I mean, it's called a conservation hatchery, so it's yeah. for conservation purpose. Or like quality of fish and breadth of diversity really matters. So if that doesn't matter, I don't know why you'd go to all this effort. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And then I really wanted to talk about the Western Division AFS or American Fishery Society award you got last year, which was the diversity and inclusion mentorship award. So that involves kind of a, a project that you're mentored through the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Do you want to talk about what you're doing with that?
1: Yeah, and I, I've definitely dropped the ball since like mid-fall. So I really, really need to pick that up again. But basically, it's just an opportunity for a student who is within the Western Division to be able to work with people who are doing diversity and inclusion work and get an idea of like what is going on and different projects. And part of that is being mentored by the committee and then coming up with a project to like give back to the community. And something that's always been really important to me throughout my career and like AFS at MSU has been mentorship, like mentoring others. Mm -hmm. Like even though I have like insane imposter syndrome, I'm like, I can't help people, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, and especially like finding wider nets of mentorship and different mentors for different applications is really cool. So we were working within the committee to form to create some sort of like division-wide mentorship opportunities because state by state, you might have students that come from very different backgrounds that might not be able to find a mentor within their state or within their student subsection that kind of matches what they'd like to see from a mentor, but maybe someone in a different state could do that. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the idea is like, making this broader network and especially now where we've kind of realized all the opportunities that we can have with digital meetings and a lot more virtual communication which has its drawbacks but it really opens a lot of opportunities for opportunities like this so we're really trying to work on that making something like that within western yeah not to the point where we were just like getting input from all the interested chapter heads and subunits and there is a lot of interest it's more just like doing it (laughs) so
0: yeah that's awesome I feel like almost the the times we're in with COVID might help facilitate that too just because we're all so much more used to virtual meetings with people
1: yeah I think people have really realized like oh like we can this would be not easy but like we have a lot of the infrastructure and people are very comfortable with it Mm -hmm. obviously it can be a lot depending on your own preferences, it can be a lot better to have someone that's close by, but if you're getting a mentor out of it, pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It's just been cool to see, because it's, it's one thing to be like, yes, I'm very interested in diversity and inclusion. Like, yes, I'm very passionate about this. And then actually see like what, what that looks like when it's being done, which I think is the point of this award it's Yeah. So- so you're like, I, I want to do more things. I try and do what I can, but like, I don't even know. And then to actually see the logistics is really, has been really cool. I'm mm-hmm. you know, about to have a job and stuff. And so how can I like in my job do stuff like that? Yeah, that was a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My next question. So you recently got a
0: job um, that you'll be starting this spring in Wisconsin. Do you want to talk about what you've been doing at that research station?
1: Yeah, so I got a job working with the Escanaba Lake Research Station out of Boulder Junction. And so it's through the Wisconsin DNR. And it basically is, the research station has like one of the oldest data sets, at least in the Midwest, I'm aware of. Like Mm -hmm. it goes like decades on this lake and looking at how lakes change over time. And like when you close regs or open regs or harvest different harvest regulations, and so it's got a long standing history of doing research with the state and like working towards helping the state understand reg changes or different physiological changes due to environmental shifts. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is like assisting with ongoing research projects, but also at some point, like starting my own research and thinking about things that I'm interested in that obviously match up with the state's management meme. So they have a lot of cool research going on now that I'm really interested in. So, and it sounds like I'm really excited. It seems like a really awesome group of people and doing a ton of cool work. And it's cool too. They do a lot of kind of interagency collaboration, since it's within like the seated territories. They do a lot of work with tribal, federal, Mm -hmm. different agencies. They do a lot of community outreach. And then a lot of the research is... It's like grounded in science and they're doing a lot of cool basic science stuff, but it's also like, you know, it's like very applied science. Yeah. So it's it's not like too far away from basic science, but it's not also like too applied, if that makes mm-hmm.
0: sense. Right. Ha- happy medium.
1: Yeah. Like it's cool. Like there's a cool balance of looking into like musky reproductive physiology. And then we're going to like apply that to more community ecology stuff. And then we're going to apply that to like angler- Regulations, yeah. Oh, that's so exciting! Just totally <laughs> <your> excited. <alley. laughs> so excited, yeah. They're doing a lot of
0: cool. Be nice to be back around lakes for you too. I'm sure.
1: Yes, <laughs> just to be like in water, around water, yeah. be really great. I in mean, Montana is cool, but
0: definitely more on the arid side. <laughs> yeah, I like water.
1: <laughs> totally fair. I love lakes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of. Rivers and streams, which are super beautiful and stuff. I'm like, I just want to be like stationary Mm -hmm. on a body of water.
0: (laughs) One question I really like asking people, especially grad students, because we kind of I think sometimes we forget we're people outside of the work that we're doing, and so it's fun for me to hear what hobbies and interests people have outside of their work. So, what do you do for fun outside of fish and conservation?
1: I Don't have a ton of hobbies right now. I am. It's so weird. I'm like 26. And I feel like I'm still figuring out how to be like an adult person with balance in my life. So I try and like, get outside with no real expectation of what that might be. And um, I try and like spend a lot of time with my dog and training my dog and Mm -hmm. getting her outside. So it's more like guilt. A lot of my activity is based on guilt for her yeah. not more activity and trying not to play as many video games because that's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just I think for hobbies, it's something I definitely want to prioritize more as I like trying to more balance my life besides like exercising and then going to work, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to read books sometimes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's a challenge for everybody. So,
1: yeah. I'm trying to think of the last time I had, like, feel like I had a good balance between, like, hobbies and doing fun things. And I really don't know if I ever have. Yeah. Like, <laughs> except when I was, like, working for those summer jobs, maybe mm. back to undergrad, even. Yeah. It was just all school research. Yeah.
0: Wow. That'd be a good goal for when you start in Wisconsin. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my goals. Like, you know, besides like taking a whole new job, like what is a hobby? I would right. Have?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this brings us to the last part of our interview where we have a group of five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. The first one is what is your favorite fish?
1: So this is a tie between, I think, musky and long sucker, which are very different, <laughs> very different, but I think muskie to me are just like this kind of mythical creature and they like lurk in lakes and like they're going to get you if you go swimming. And I helped my dad do some sampling a few years ago where we were fight netting for muskies. And I just remember like coming up to the net and then just like this roiling black mass of like angry fish. And there was this turtle that was like trapped in the net. He was like, Oh my God, save me from these like Beasts and like you literally have to like put them in a tube sock to Mm -hmm. do anything because they're too strong. And I just I respect that. I think they're Mm -hmm. too strong. They have to be put in like a little sweater. And I just like long nose suckers because they're just really cute and undervalued.
0: Yes, they are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love suckers. Like I respect that will to live
0: (laughs) yeah for sure (laughs) all right uh what is your favorite memory from your career so far
1: um I think my favorite one that I can think of is when I was working in the park and we made this goal through the gill netting season to visit all the islands on Yellowstone Lake and there are actually only a couple like real islands and the rest are like rock piles and the last one was the Molly Islands. And so we were able to get access and we we're gill netting. It was like super cold, like fall. I think it was snowing. And we had bought this like 12 volt coffee maker. So we would just drive around mm. drinking terrible coffee in this boat. We're, like, we're going to go to Molly Islands and we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to finish the list. Storm. <laughs> and so we are like, we get off like one at a time get off the boat and like stand on like the Mali islands which are like rocks drinking coffee and i have like a really cool photo of me like surveying the lake with my cup of coffee and like my full gear Mm -hmm. that one was pretty cool and then as we were trying to get back on the boat i almost fell in (laughs) pretty
0: funny nice okay our next question is what is your dream job or location
1: So I don't really have a dream job and because I don't, there's not like one thing that I've always wanted to do. So Mm -hmm. it's more like if I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm interested in it, I'm, I'm pretty happy, but I do, I love the Great Lakes. So if I could have like, and I love being on boats, so I could have a job where I was like on a boat in Lake Superior doing something cool with fish and lake trout are one of my favorite fish so that would be cool I think yeah living on a boat, gill netting or something
0: yeah that kind of rolls into our next question so if money wasn't an issue what's one project you'd like to work
1: on yeah something like that probably (laughs) like some sort of like massive sampling effort of the great lakes on a big I think like maybe doing some sort of like I really like phenotypic diversity that's like my whole project I've always been really interested in that it's like part of why I became interested in science is just seeing like like the whole concept of like adaptive radiation and like having individuals that live so close together be so different so I could do something that was like quantifying all those differences in like Lake Trout or Cisco or something. That'd mm-hmm.
0: be yeah, that'd be sweet. Okay, our last question is: if there's one pointer principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be?
1: Yeah, this one is very difficult. This is the most difficult one. Um, I think that actually the most important thing and it's kind of cliche and like it's really hard to actually do is like you really can't compare yourself to other people Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or like the only way you're ever going to be satisfied in anything you do is if you can be happy about it and and even if other people are oh wow like they had this happen this happened wow they're so successful and I'm not like it's really hard to overcome that. It's like tied with imposter syndrome, maybe. But like, you have to find a way to be content with what you're doing for yourself, mm-hmm. and you can know like if you're meeting your potential or you're working hard. And it doesn't ultimately matter what other people are doing. And I was thinking about it too. Like, two people are never going to have the same experiences or same background. So it it's kind of like. Fallacy is the wrong word, but like to try and compare yourself to someone else who's so different than you—it's like not pointless, but like fruit fruitless. Like it's better to just try and identify your own priorities and goals and limitations and work within that, as opposed to other people. Because otherwise, you will never be happy. Mm -hmm. Because I've had to learn for myself; it's really hard.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Taking forever. It's like a long project. It was like designed to be a long project, but now I'm like adding more time on. And so I could be like, oh my God, like some people take two years. Like, so like this is and something I struggle with is like a lot. Is like, is there something wrong with me that's making me take so long? And like other people could probably do this. It's like, yeah, other people probably could have finished it faster, but they're not doing this project. I am. So mm-hmm. I can feel bad about it or try to get it.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
1: I can. <laughs> so I think that's the most important thing. And I think it's something we all struggle with. But if you can come to terms with it, you'll ultimately be a lot happier in your life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That's great. Okay. Well, thanks again, Taylor, for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed hearing about your work again because I get to hear about it all the time, but it's really fun. And I'm really happy we get to share it with our audience as well. If people want to find out more about you or your project. How could they get a hold of you to do that?
1: Can just email me and I'm on LinkedIn and ResearchGate. So, people, if they just wanted to look at the project, they can look on it there, contact me in any of those ways.
0: Cool. Yeah, I will include those links in the show notes. If you would like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter. And the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at pod or send us an email at feedback at the podcast.com I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or the fisheries And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome fisheries podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the fisheries podcast. And remember, don't compare yourself or your progress to other people.